Yo, what's happening? This is Miles from Slightly Stupid, and you're listening to Bradley's House Podcast. everybody come on in grab a seat make yourself at home as you should when you're a guest in bradley's house the podcast i am your co-host jared Orr. she is the executive director of the noel family foundation and our host miss kelly noel kelly how you doing today i'm doing great jared how are you super good always Almost <laughs> how could i not be how could i not be right <laughs> things are great we're here things for another great we're here for another awesome episode, Kelly. You, uh, you never, you never surprise me anymore because I never know what you're going to come up with. You keep finding these amazing guests uh, from all these different walks of life, and I think it really makes for a, an awesome show and a great opportunity for our listeners to get to meet all sorts of different people from all sorts of different places. So, without any further ado, who's our guest in Bradley's house today? Jarrett, today I'm excited to talk with one of the UK's foremost music writers. He's written for the Rolling, for Rolling Stone, The Guardian, Mojo, the BBC. He currently writes for The Telegraph and Kerrang. And over the past couple of decades, he's interviewed countless musicians and written several books, including his latest, which will be published next year, called Bodies, Life and Death in the Music Industry. Joining us from the UK, I'm stoked to welcome Ian Winwood to the show. Ian, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, uh, everybody. Hello, everybody listening. Thank you for making me your guest. In Absolutely. What, what is this evening in London? That's right. It is evening for you. It's afternoon for me. We're all spread out across the globe here. But um, I had the pleasure of talking with you a few weeks ago when That's you right. were finishing up your book. And it just occurred to me that with all of the experiences that you've had, um, you know, and everything that you've done, that it would just be such a natural fit. Uh, when did you start writing in the music industry? Uh, I started writing in the music industry, uh, Kelly, when I was, it will be 30 years ago next year. I was wow. I was 20 years old and I had finished, I can tell you a very quick story if you like. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had finished my uh, a, a journalism course in the north of England, which is where I am from which was useless in in every way save for one <laughs> which is which is it gave me the confidence to come to london mm. and chance my arm since then no one has ever asked me if i have a journalist qualification or not mm -hmm. um, and i realized that without it i could have done this but I, I didn't know this at the time and i came to london and i read in and i wanted to write for kerrang it took me a good sort of eight years to get to kerrang wow. um, but I, but I, I was reading in um, in Kerrang that I no I didn't know anyone in, in in publishing or in the music industry. I'd know in. I didn't know how I was going to to orchestrate this idea of mine to 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 break in. Uh, and I read in a copy of of Kerrang. It was a really cold January day, and I, for some reason I was at Paddington train station. If anybody knows the bear, that's where that's where Paddington got his name. Mm -hmm. And um, I was reading Kerrang at a newsstand, and it said uh, an American metal band who 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 are called Exodus 
uh, and um, Kirk Hammett from Metallica was Metallica was Exodus's original guitarist, uh, and Gary Holt played with Slayer on, on, on in, in the final years of that band's existence. Anyway, and it, and they were in town recording an album on a major label, and and it and it, it gave the name of the studio, and. Um, I, I, I don't know how because there was no internet, but I found out where the studio was. And one morning, one, it was a Monday morning, and I went to the studio at nine o'clock. Uh, and I, I went into reception and I, I said, look, I'm trying to break into music journalism. Do you think the band will give me an interview? Are they here? And I discovered, I've learned a very important lesson that, that, that day, which is that people in the music industry don't start work at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Uh, so I went and had a little bit of breakfast and came back an hour or two later and very graciously in, in what today strikes me as something close to altruism because I, I couldn't do anything to help them. They get two members of the band gave me an hour of their time and I, I went back to the place that I was living and I, I typed up on a, on a typewriter, not a computer, typed wow. up this interview. And then the next day hand delivered it around to all the magazines in London. I can't imagine that I would ever be that proactive again hmm. uh, and but and by the end of the week i'd got offers of work from from two magazines so wow. that, that that's how it started that's fantastic yeah. good for you that shows some real initiative that's that's what it takes that's for it, sure. it, it's like looking back on a stranger to be honest with you but that is indeed what i did that is phenomenal actually our wonderful producer anna is a huge fan of exodus oh right well there you go i did that <laughs> I did actually remind Gary Holt of this. I mean, decades later, and he had he had no, he had no memory of it. But it, it meant <laughs> it meant and indeed means a lot to me. Absolutely. So, who are some of the artists that you've interviewed over the years? Oh gosh, uh, I mean, when 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 people ordinarily ask me that outside of the music industry, of course, I I I defer to the to the to the most famous names. So I guess to start with those, it would be, I mean, I tend to, to concentrate on rock music, although at the Telegraph, where I've been writing for coming up, coming up a couple of years now, they don't really care that, 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 that I've sort of made my name in the rock press. They'll just let me mm. write about anything. So for nice. them, it can be, it can be, you know, I interviewed James Taylor quite recently oh. uh, and, and people like Billy Bragg. Uh, and oh. Paul Heaton, who you, you perhaps don't know in the United States, but it's quite a, a well, a very noted singer-songwriter over here. Oh. Um, but in terms of in terms of what for the longest time was my beat, uh, groups such as Metallica and Muse and the Foo Fighters, quite a number of times. Um, uh, the White Stripes, Arctic Monkeys, Kings of Leon, uh, the Beastie Boys, Green Day. Um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, and then sort of the great punk bands such as, you know, Bad Religion in, in, in an enormous number of times. Um, I mean, gosh, it, there's, I mean, in terms of music with music that, that, that is played loud, the thing about Koran, mm. for anyone that doesn't know it, um, as a weekly publication, it was always the one that I wanted to write for, and I wanted to do it 
from when I first discovered the magazine when I was 14. Mm. The, the title of the magazine is an onomatopoeia, by which I mean it, it, it's a word that denotes what it describes. Right. Uh, so Kerrang! is the sound of a, of a, of a, of a guitar struck with force. Mm. So it's not a metal magazine, although it covers that. It's not a punk magazine, although it covers that. It's just a magazine about loud music. So if we're sort of talking about bands who make loud and forceful music i hope i don't i'm not meaning to sound conceited here it's possibly easier to to ask me who i haven't wow that that sounds terribly conceited and i'm honestly no that's wonderful i'm not meaning to kelly i promise you well you've had an amazing career there's nothing to be ashamed of yeah i'd be bragging too don't 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 feel bad. Uh, let me ask you: Have you ever interviewed uh, Graham Bonnet from uh, from the band Alcatraz or Rainbow? Yeah. Do, do you know what? Funnily enough, I have, and quite recently too. And the reason that I did that, Jarrah, I mean, when you, I thought he's going to get me. He's going to say say a name that I've never interviewed. <laughs> uh, and in fact, in fact, I have. I wrote a piece last summer. Um, we have a festival over here. It's called Download, uh, and originally the festival is called the Monsters of Rock Festival, and it's it's held at a, a, a what is it? A, a sort of a racetrack in um, in the East Midlands. You, your listeners don't need to know all that stuff. Anyway, the, the, and it was the one at the time. It was a hard rock metal festival, and the first one was forty years ago last summer. And the light, and it was headlined by Rainbow and Judas Priest were on the bill and Saxon, I think Anvil, no, anyway, some other bands too, April Wine, I think were on the bill. And I wrote a piece about that and I, Graham Bonnet was one of the people I spoke to for that. Well, our lovely producer, um, Anna, is a yeah. huge Graham Bonnet fan to the fact that she has Graham Bonnet tattooed on her body. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, she has a she has a Graham Bonnet uh, portrait, and uh, I reached out to his manager. Um, I guess it was about two years ago now at this point, mm. and said, uh, "Hey, there's this really hot young girl that would like to have an autograph of Graham, and uh, he's actually tattooed on her body." And they were like, "Yeah, right, prove it." <laughs> and I sent the picture over, and they were like, "What address do you want the autograph sent to?" <laughs> and uh, and they out and they sure enough sent one, so. Um, that's cool. That's gonna, yeah, that will be added to her tattoo. So I just, I really had to ask that question for her benefit because she's like his biggest fan, and I, I figured you, you had to have spoken to him at some point. He was a good-looking lad. There's no doubt about that. Do you have any favorite yeah. interviews that you've done? Um, gosh, that's such. A, I mean, there are, there are there are there are many favorite moments. I mean, I've been, I've been. Um, I mean, one of the things. Kelly, is that, I mean, I was thinking about an interview I did, I was thinking the other day about an interview I did perhaps two years ago, and I couldn't actually remember. I remembered where I'd done it, but I couldn't remember who it was with because because the band sort of came and went a little bit. So mm-hmm. there's a, a, lot of, a lot of those kind of, of, of interviews where, and I suppose this is one of the things with, with mental health and the music industry, is that, people invest all their hopes and energies in it and they don't tend to have a plan B mm. and in two years it's gone. It just doesn't work out. So I'm, th- those always tend to stay with me. 
um, even if in this instance I couldn't remember who it was with. But the the bands who sort of have made it, I remember once I was interviewing the Beastie Boys in New York, and um, they, they'd been away for years and just sort of to get things rolling. I, I asked them, politely asked them to account for their absence. And they said, um, oh, we were kidnapped by Sasquatch. I didn't know what Sasquatch <laughs> was. That's not, that's not, that's not the word we use here. But we would call it Kidnapped. <laughs> And uh, and I said oh, I said really okay and and what what did you learn in in that time? And they said oh he he taught us to dance. And I said um, and we're in a really, in a really small sort of office in in, in like a, a a Chelsea brownstone in in New York. And and I said they said oh we we they taught they taught us to dance. He, he taught us to dance. And I said okay show me. And uh, I'd I'd. Uh, Adam Horovitz didn't do it, but Mike D and uh, an MCA, Adam Yao, uh-huh. and Michael Diamond did, and they got. And I'm an enormous <laughs> Beastie Boys fan. I've I've called many things wrong over the years, but I bought Paul's Boutique on the day it came out. My my oh. my, my allegiance is legit. I never lost faith. I was and, literally just listening to the License to Ill album this morning. That's so, so funny. They, so they stood up. So it's kind of like in the Intergalactic video. They were kind of just like body, not quite body. <laughs> my hands are kind of protruding forward and i'm, I'm sort of thinking the beastie boys are dancing to me, you know? <laughs> so, so i mean if i had to pick a moment that would be it and there was i suppose one for which i became briefly known certainly in m- music journalist circles I, 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 after a bad experience with Chad Kroger from Nickelback, who's, who's just, I mean, it's just, it's just not good music. And I don't think that I just, it's just not what I like. And I can make a case as to why that, that, why that is. Um, but I had a bad experience with him in Philadelphia and, um, I, I mean, how much of this story to tell you? I just don't want to bore your <laughs> listeners. But at the start, so after this bad experience, they were on a bill. It was one of those, you have these in the United States. It was it was a Christmas time concert for a local radio station, which raised funds for local charities. Uh, and and the bill was Blink-182 were headlining, Bush were playing, um Nickelback were playing, someone else, Leet were playing, I'm forgetting one of the bands, but Nickelback were were second from the bottom of the bill because they were just sort of breaking, but they were breaking. And, um, and the, 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 the PA announcer, announcer said that, you know, they'll, they'd be on in five minutes. And, and most of the crowd cheered, but you could hear an undercurrent of booing in the crowd. Mm. And, and when the band started, there was a kid, toward the front of the stage who was just flipping the bird with both fingers to, to, to Chad Kroger rather than putting them in his ears, which is what I would have done. And, <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and he's, he, at the end of the song, Kroger insisted that this kid was removed, was thrown out. Uh, and, um, and I just couldn't believe that he'd sort of done that, that he couldn't take this on the chin. Wow. So when I wrote up the story, I can't say this word. Let's just say it is a word that North Americans very rarely say. But it's, <laughs> but it's, but it's, but it's banded around in the UK quite a lot. 
And it you begins, can say anything on here. And it, well, it begins with C. Okay? I'm sure. It, I'm sure there's four letters in it. Also, you can yeah, say cunt. Go ahead, Ian. <laughs> it's, it's universally regarded as being the worst swear word in the lexicon. Uh, and kind so of why I enjoy it. I just didn't think that Kerrang would would print this. I just mm-hmm. didn't it because I thought, well, this, this is how I'd like to write it, and they just stuck it straight in print. Oh. And, and then and then when the the band were, were were coming to this is how long ago this was. The band were coming to the UK to record to 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 do a tour of arenas or an arena tour, and um, mm. and they they what used to happen is that record companies would put out a single to proceed the tour. Uh, and they did, and I was reviewing the singles that way. So just for fun, I did it again. Uh, and um, and they'd already sent me sort of bouquets of, of lilies, which are funeral flowers anyway. Oh, God. So when the when the band came to, to town, I actually went to a soccer match that night, or for a football match for anyone listening in Europe. And mm. uh, I woke up the next morning. This was before everybody had real, they had mobile phones, but you couldn't get internet on them. And, um, and I, you know, people didn't check them. Or certainly I didn't check my email all the time. And I woke up in the morning to this avalanche of emails saying, <laughs> oh my God, are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? And I'm like, to do what? And they said, oh, Chad Kroger challenged you, but to last night from the stage, by name to a fight. Oh and, my God. And so I said, I said, oh, I can't say no. And I go, I went into the Kerrang office and they were singing the Rocky theme at me. And and, <laughs> and I remember that the, the news editor had been on the phone to like the British Boxing Council to find oh, out what no. to do to stage a fight. And for anybody that anybody that's interested, you only need a doctor. You don't even need a license. And it's like, oh God, I'm going, oh, no. I'm going to get killed. And, and <laughs> but, but nothing came of it. Nothing came of it. Oh, so, so I'm not surprised. Back. I'm not surprised at all that nothing came of it. I think you would have stood tall. Don't don't, don't cut I'm, yourself short. Garrett, I'm not tall. I'm literally <laughs> all figure. I mean, I've got a big gob, as you can hear, but I'm not. I'm not a tall person. And but I was thinking, if I just got one lucky punch in, and, and <laughs> that's that's a humiliation he would never ever recover from. So, so nothing came of it. So those, those along with the hundred others. Those two, but I, 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 I tend to. I mean, I do have quite a. In answer to your question, I do have something approaching a photographic memory, and and there are just you know so many. Even the most routine interviews, I learn something about this mm. strange world of of the professional musician. Yeah, and and so you know, taken together. Uh, you know, when I, when I was first starting out, I, you know, one of my first interviews was, was with Lane Staley from wow. Alice in Chains. He was the first in the book that I'm writing. I, I, I was I put this in. Um, he was the first obviously damaged person that I ever met. And then shortly after that, I mean, certainly the, the same year, if not just a couple of months afterward, um, I interviewed the band aren't necessarily very popular in in North America, but over here they are a band called the Manic Street Preachers, uh, and and their I interviewed their guitarist, and a couple of years after that he just l- l- disappeared without trace. Now, quite quite recently, um, somewhat recently, the 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 family changed his official status from missing person to dead. But in about in about I think about 1995 or 1996, um, he just disappeared and no, and no one ever knew where he were, never knew where wow. he went or where he was. 
So I think quite early, even though I didn't necessarily, in fact, I didn't piece it together for the longest time, suddenly I was in the company of um, people whose experiences were um, markedly different, certainly from the norm. If, you know, if these kind of things were going on with your friends and you didn't work in the music music industry, particularly the music industry, I think, you would attempt to help them or at the very least be aware that this was wrong. Uh, what was happening was, 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 was uh, bad for them. Right, some red whereas, flags. Whereas, where, right, whereas in the music industry, and this is one of the things I've been writing about, in, in the music industry, certainly traditionally, perhaps things are changing somewhat. Not only is it, does it seem to be priced in to the cost of doing business, but it's actually a selling point, you know? Mm. And, um, and I, you know, I've, I've written, oh gosh, hundreds of stories about people that are in some way or another mentally unwell, they're addicted to something. And of course, there's a giant Venn diagram overlap there. Mm-hmm. I, I, I will defend the, these pieces um, because that when, you know, you, you put them together, they're as tall as I am. But I will defend the tone of these pieces, but I can't deny their existence. You know, it's, it's, it's marbled through the music industry. So, that, and I, I do tend to remember those things. When you and I spoke um, for your book, yeah. we we spoke extensively about about what you were just saying about how these things are tolerated and even celebrated in the music mm-hmm. industry that that normally you know would would be addressed in a, in a very different way if someone were not an artist. And um, what was it that that made you decide to write a book about this? Like, I mean, obviously you've seen so much of it, but was there ever a moment where you just finally went? I need to I need to speak up about this or I need to 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 do something. Well, I I think what happened was I mean I wrote a book a couple of years ago which was my first ever idea for a book which was a book about um the the great success of the Californian punk bands which remarkably somehow manages to omit sublime and I don't quite know how I managed that. <laughs> So I have to accept my apologies for that, and perhaps oh, good. You, uh, perhaps you will you will call me to account for that. <laughs> um, and uh, and I was sort of scrabbling around for something else to write about in book form. Mm. Now I won't tell you the exact details, only because it it's a bit of a spoiler for the book. Mm. But for the longest time in the music industry, I was given cover to behave, let's generously describe it foolishly. Mm. Um, I was never addicted to anything, but I'd fallen into habits, if, if, you, if, you, if you understand, appreciate, sure. appreciate the distinction. Of course. Uh, and then actually 10 years ago this month my my father died in, mm, in, sorry. in, in it's okay in, start, in startling and, and and alarming circumstances and um and so that was one thing uh and i i, I found his body and and so that was one thing oh. but another thing was that i got half of his estate which wasn't it wasn't a life-changing amount 
of money. I couldn't have bought a house in London with it or anything like that. But it was certainly enough to be very, very foolish. Mm. And I just sort of went completely off the rails and, and, and not in a... Uh, a celebratory way. This really wasn't fun. It was just a, 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 a pursuit uh, of extremes. And I, I, I can be quite an extreme person. You know, I, when I go running, I tend to go running for a couple of hours. And, and, and so I do definitely have that within me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I just had the money to just take drugs, cocaine, uh, and, and drink. And the only reason I really drank was to come down from the cocaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was really bad, and I was I was in and out of hospital, and I, I just I just I mean I honestly think that that had it, it had I taken it any further, I, I was placing my life in danger. There's, there's right. no there's no question about that, uh, and I was in the in the arms of the mental health services, and it was just crazy. And then I I sort of I, it seems a bit glib to say that I got over it, that I snapped out of it. But I definitely reached a point where I thought something within me thought it's time to stop this now. Mm-hmm. And although the road in, back into the light, it wasn't a perfectly smooth gradient up toward the light. The the the, the frequency of the episodes became le- the episodes became less dramatic gradually over time, and the distance between them became longer. And longer mm-hmm. until now, it's you know been a, a couple of years. So that's uh, maybe eighteen months. So that's that's obviously good. So I'm thinking as a as a forgive me if I'm taking a long time to ask this question. No, this, this is great. Well, and so I was thinking about. I'm very suspicious of you know aging mu- music journalists um, <laughs> who just leap from one book to another. And right. when I wrote the comic book, one of the things I liked about it was is that it it told an interconnecting story and 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 flipped through times, and and things like that. And I thought, well, I don't just want to write a book about you know s- seek out a band and think, well, I'll write a book about them. So you mm-hmm. know, what's a good story? What's a good story? And sort of much later than it might have done, it occurred to me that perhaps this was the foundation for a good story. Mm. And as I thought about it, I thought that the experiences of other people within the industry, the fact that it was only when things became too bad to ignore for me, did I ever, and I didn't even lose writing gigs. I was just sort of placed on sabbatical as people worried about me. Mm. Um, and I just thought, well, I, why do so many, I mean, I, I was ill in the music industry. I don't think the music industry made me ill because, you know, I, I live at home. I, I you know, I, I don't, but I think that there's something about the structure of the music industry uh and I've obviously I've firmed these these thoughts up in the course of writing the book. I'm presently just combing through each chapter now to to tighten it up as best I can. And I thought, well, and I'd come to view all of these stories, you know, whether it be Lane Staley or whether it be uh, Brett Gurevitz, who who you know was addicted to crack and heroin, or whether it be. Oh gosh, so, so you know, just so many, so many people. Almost all of the stories I write, if they're not about someone and they're not written for this reason, 
But as part of the story, there's someone in the band or someone in a band that they toured with who, you know, who's, who did, were leading or had led terribly dysfunctional lives. Right. And, I, and I, I sort of regarded these as being separate incidents. Obviously, I knew that they were common, but I, I didn't necessarily connect them into this tapestry. Uh, and that's sort of what came, what has come about in, in, in the course of writing the book. Why do you think that, that, I'm not sure exactly how to phrase this, obviously it's an issue not just in the music industry, but pretty much all across the entertainment industry in general. I mean, we see a lot of the same behaviors with, um, you know, actors and artists really of all types. Why do you think that it is so, um, so tolerated or so, so ignored or glossed over? Um, is, it, is it just because of the money involved? In the music industry, yeah, in any industry. Uh, well, I think I think the music. I mean, I think I, I would think I don't. I mean, I don't really have the cycle, but the background in in psychology to answer this with any any any. It's it's only a hunch, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the arts tend to attract people, perhaps who are wired slightly differently mm-hmm. um and their motivations are slightly different uh creativity and vulnerability are not necessarily um always too far removed from one another right uh it can be very a very distorting lens you know um but i think as it relates to music there are i think music is particularly problematic i think that we can see that you know if, if when Heath Ledger died uh or when Philip Seymour Hoffman died both drug related deaths that was an absolute uh, unabated tragedy no one right. sort of there was nothing cool about that right although that these tragedies happen in the music industry there is something that makes us celebrate these and 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 I think that one of these things is I, I think one of these things is that um, there is this feeling of of, 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 of of a particular outlaw spirit in music, the mm. sort of traveling musician that's sort of slightly outside of the law. Um, and, and, and also there has been a culture of, of, of bands monetizing this. I don't necessarily mean cynically, um, but nonetheless, you know, Motley Crue would be the example that I always fall back on. Motley Crue, and now, I, th- I would say, you know, Motley Crue were about to do a tour and will do so again when 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 your country opens up, mm-hmm. you know, of stadiums. It's a stadium tour. It's co-headline with Def Leppard, but Motley Crue are the closing act. Motley Crue never played stadiums. Motley Crue were an, an arena band. They haven't released new music. What they have done is they've had the Netflix Netflix movie. With the dirt, they've had the heroin diaries by Nikki Six. Um, so it's sort of it's not it's it it, it it hasn't always been a hidden secret in in rock mm. and roll. I think particularly one of the reasons that musicians uh, uh, fall prey to this, and this is something that occurred to me as I was writing this book, is is sort of they sign contracts when they're very very young ordinarily. 
uh, and they are sort of certainly with the business as it is at the moment they're sort of reduced to a, a state of servitude almost and with that servitude is a sense of gratitude that they are even allowed to do this um, um uh, I mean, I was speaking to a band, a band in Britain who who have a, a top five LP. Their, their name is Creeper, and and would have made in and, and on a major label, and they would would have made inroads. Uh, and you know, they earn they earn so little money from you know their recorded output that they are in order to earn a living, they are required to to be on the road for longer than it is healthy and i think right. that, that i think that that is the place at which if if one doesn't have a really really strong sense of yourself because everything out there for anyone that's ever joined a band on the road um the thing that always strikes me is that everything on the road is extreme I might have said this in our phone conversation, Kelly. Um, the gigs are extreme, whether it's whether it's to twenty thousand people or you trying to make it work in front of twelve people in a bar, right. um, and the vast empty spaces of boredom. The boredom is extreme. You know, you can't go home. Mm. You know, you're always around people. It's it's just a really really weird environment. And in the course of writing this book. I have racked my brains trying to think of another place of work where you go there, as you will, you know, your dressing room, your dressing room is your place of work and the promoter will have filled, will have given you literally cases of beer, a couple of, you know, if if you're, if you're headlining, you know, a, a thousand capacity room, you have, you have enough power to have you on your rider, three cases of beer, uh two bottles of spirits and you'll get the same again next the next night as well um it's 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 just you know behavior that is not normal is normalized in in, in, in the music industry and i think that that is why it's practitioners young people um are uh, easy prey to to illness. Absolutely. Now you've toured with some different artists before in the past, right? When, well, when you say tour, I've joined them on the road for a couple of dates. Mm-hmm. Who are some of those artists? Uh, that I've sort of and, and I've sort of hopped in and out when they're on tour. So uh, Green Day. Uh, I've actually been on tour with Frank. Turner, sorry, you and I were talking about Frank Turner in our interview, Kelly. Yes. Uh, I, I, I actually was on tour with him because I was interviewing him on stage. Um, a couple of dates, a really, really fabulous band, arena band here in the UK called Biffy Clyro, which is not a good name for a band, but they are just the most <laughs> superb band. Um, wow. uh, yeah, on, on, as they were coming up, a couple of dates with them, my mind's somewhat going blank, um, and and if not, it's only ever for a couple of dates. But yeah. the, but the, the you know the number of times that I have been with a band, you know, on a date on their tour in various places in the world. Sure. You know, Metallica in Dallas, I did I did once. Uh, gosh, so many um, that 
Are you saying, you know, as soon as we finish talking, a million. <laughs> It'll all pop in your head. Yeah. But it's, it's giving you the opportunity, of course, to witness firsthand how yeah. all of that, you know, behind the scenes goes and, and the boredom, as you were mentioning, and, you know, finding ways to fill your time until they're set and that kind of thing. It, yeah. It's very, it can be very destructive. And I, I like the way you said it. If you don't have a strong sense of who you are, you know, I can imagine that it becomes very difficult. And, and who, how, and, you know, and who among us, you know, has a strong sense of who right. you are. And, and of course, not everyone in, in a band is, you know, young. Not everyone is 22 years old. But they will have learned those lessons at that age, you know, you know, mm. so um, and and then they have to f- figure out a way to make it work. You know, so if you're at a, at a high level, then you can hop aboard a private jet, which is what Metallica do or Green Day have separate tour buses. You find a way to make it work. Frank Turner, it's something as it's some simple as he has an hour in each day during which he reads a book and no one can disturb him. Mm. You know, these things that, 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 that keep you grounded. Um, but it's, it's a just a, a, a terribly, terribly confusing, you know, what, 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 what job of work. I spoke to a, 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 psycho, a psychologist, a clinical psychologist therapist who works in the music industry. And my fiance, when we first started going together had never seen an arena show which was a, an enormous shock to me i mean i just imagine she was an army show or something because who <laughs> hasn't seen an arena show so i I, t- I took her to see i took her to see Def leopard because i thought well they're going to do it as well as anyone to to, sure. to introduce her to the big full whistles and bells production and and now it's interesting because joe elliott who i've spoken to a number of times who's the band singer seems to me about as unaffected by, you know, what was truly and is truly international success yes. as anyone that I, I have ever met. But in the same band, they had Steve Clark, who drank him, drugged himself to death. So, it, mm. you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it, it can cast its shadow in, it unevenly among people. And I remember watching Joe Elliott. We, we call them ego ramps, you know, the sort of ramps that lead out into the crowd from the stage. Mm-hmm. Right. And he walked along the ego ramp and he sort of had his arms in the air. And the whole place is 20,000 people. It's at the O2 Arena here in London. They're going mad. They're going crazy. Wow. And these are adult people. These are, you know, people, certainly a lot of them are in their middle years. And some of them are their children. But, and, and, mm-hmm. And and my fiance said to me, "Gosh, how you know how do they how do they come down after that?" And that is a good question. Whose job right. is at eleven o'clock at night with a room full of people shouting at you? You know, right. so you know even that is strange. And, and anyway, I, I I spoke to this uh, clinical psychologist and who who works in the music industry. Thinking of Joe Elliott, I said to her. Well, of course, not everyone. I don't. I didn't want to appear to be sort of over over amplifying or oversimplifying or painting too sort of binary a picture. And I said, you know, of course, well, not, of course, not everyone. Uh, most people don't 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 you know have 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 problems, uh, you know, with the industry. It's just you know some people just it's just like a normal job. And she said, and I remember this, and I put this in the book. She said, well. Actually, no, I don't think that's true. I think everyone suffers to some degree or another. And this is, um, 
and some of them don't yet know it, but they mm. all are um, vulnerable to 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 the to the strangeness of of the music industry. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because from the outside looking in, it's easy to think that you know their lives are perfect. They've got all these wonderful things, but I do think that it's hard sometimes to understand the struggles of that lifestyle as well. Right. And what do you think is is the answer? I mean, what's the solution? What can be done? Uh, well, first of all, I, I'm not I'm not sure that there is a, a, a solution as such because for as long as there has been rock and roll music, there has been um, illness and excess. Mm. And we only have to look back to Alice Cooper at the at the start of the seventies, and he what he had this he had this drinking club called the Hollywood Vampires, mm. and Keith Mean Keith Moon would show up, and Harry Nilsson, uh, and Peter, uh, the bassist from Fleetwood Mac. He's he's escaped my mind. John Lennon would sometimes show up, and um, I think Jim Morrison did every now and again, and they just get blasted, and they were called the Hollywood Vampires because no one ever saw them during daylight. And you know, there are a hundred, a hundred, a thousand stories, you know, from the twentieth century. So I don't think there has ever was an age of wellness, but I think that the state of penury that uh, musicians are in with regard to the business model at the moment, I think is, is unacceptable. It seems to me, Kelly, to be intellectually unsustainable uh, and morally unsustainable, actually, that when the music industry is shut down by a pandemic, the musicians themselves are the only ones that are going broke. That just mm. seems to me to be morally wrong it seems to be an appalling right. state of affairs um so i think that the very least you could do is 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 pay them uh pay them fairly pay them fairly for their streaming royalties uh right. give them a fighting chance so that the ones who don't so people aren't forced onto the road all of the time as the only way of making money. You know, merchandise sales and ticket sales are the only things on which uh, a, 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 a musician, a band, can guarantee that is theirs, you know? Right. Um, so I think that that would be a start to give them a shot, that if, if, if they are a successful band or they become a relatively successful band, that they can make a living like this is an English group, but Talk Talk were a really good example right. of that in the 80s and 90s. They became a studio band, a band that would never happen now because you just can't make any money of it. So pay them properly. And and, and so that in terms of the, the, corp, the, the, the balance sheet, the corporate structure, these people are not on their knees because I think that state of servitude and sort of gratitude that 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 they tend to adopt. You know, they don't like to talk about having problems because they're also grateful that that, that they'll be doing this. And, and this gratitude is misplaced. It's because they're, you know, like I said, they're in a state of servitude, right. and they're not they're not expressing what it is that is ailing them because they think that they shouldn't be complaining about mm. this. But not only are these 
these complaints are wholly valid, they're being exploited. And I think that that, on top of the things that we've already discussed, that we're already, I think, part of the music industry, and I think always will be, to be honest with you, this whole new culture of ripping people off is, is, as a, is, is a whole new level of trouble for musicians. Right, indeed. Oh, that's good insight. So what did you, what do you hope to accomplish with your book? Like what was the whole um, impetus for writing it, um, the, the message that you're hoping to get across? Oh, I mean, that's really very easy to answer, Kelly. All I wanted to do was write a good book. <laughs> um, I mean, books change shape somewhat as you write them. And sure. I noticed I've, I've spent the last couple of weeks going through the first half of the book, which I thought was almost there and discovered that it's actually not anywhere near as good as the second half, which mm. is good because it means that the book got stronger as I went along and I sort of right. it out. Um, so I've spent a couple of weeks bringing the first half up to code. Just before I came on the line with you, I started reading the first chapter of the second half and that's, that's as I want it to be. So that's a relief that I don't have to do it with the whole book. I just want to... I, I, well, I mean, that's a good question. Primarily, I wanted to write the best book that I could. Um, I didn't think that I don't think there's any point in in being a writer, especially a writer that has the freedom to write a book, to write anything other than the book that I that I want to write. Mm -hmm. So that is really all that I am concerned with, to be honest with you. You know, and a, a, a great number. So what it does, it tells my own story and it interweaves it with the story of others. Um, uh, you know, people spoke to me about, you know, the, the culture of sexual, sexual, not, not just sexual harassment, but sexual trespass in the music industry, mm. which right. is, of course, something that I have no claim to, to, to understand so really I have a response I, 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 oh, I have a I have a responsibility to write in good faith about the people that have that have taken the time to talk to me what what I also have to do I don't think that the you know the, the one thing in the, this whole this whole discussion that is indubitably a good thing for the people that make it and for the people that listen to it, is the music it's, itself. Uh, and I wanted, I didn't want it to be a cynical book. I wanted it to be a, a precise book um, that didn't seek to denigrate, actually, you know, music, because I don't, without it, I don't know where, where I would be. You know, I listened to Frank Turner's appearance uh, on Bradley's house, and and he said the same, you know. So, I wanted to keep the music special, mm. but I wanted to write about as 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 wisely and as and 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 as 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 forcefully. I think I I find that this industry is broken, really. Yeah. Absolutely. Does that make so any some, kind of sense? I'm not sure. That absolutely, Kelly. But no, it, it definitely does. I think I I really am excited about the opportunity to just get the conversation going about you know mental health and addiction and you know a lot of the pitfalls that that people face in the music industry, having mm. seen firsthand what my brother went through, right. and, and hopefully by you know by you 
writing your book and, and us talking about on the podcast and so many other people were all sort of joining this global conversation and, and helping people to understand a little bit more about it. And then hopefully that will pour over into other areas, not just the music industry as well. But, you know, as we can understand the problem as it relates to this industry, then I think it will give us a bit more um, compassion and understanding for everyone in general who struggles with mental health and addiction. And, you know, we all have things that we struggle with. And so I think it's, I think it's important to talk about these things. And so that's one, one reason I'm very excited to read your book. And I think it will do a lot to, to shed some light on that, you know, being that you have such a unique perspective. Well, I, I hope so. May, may I ask you a question, Kelly? Sure. You, 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 Ever you, the journalist. You, well, you have some great insight in this. I, I, if it's not an, an, an impertinent or, or, or inappropriate question, uh, if, if Sublime were emerging today, do you think that Bradley would be safer than he was, you know, in the, in the early to middle years of the 90s? Hmm. I don't, I don't necessarily think so, no. Right. Because I think the problem is, is universal. I think definitely the way that we approach it and the way that we view it is changing and that's a good thing, but, but the problems are still there right. and you know, there's always going to be ways to hide it. There's always going to be ways to, um, to cope with it in, you know, in an unhealthy manner. Um, but I do think that as we become more comfortable talking about it, that it gives people the opportunity to get the help that they need. So I don't necessarily think that he would have been any safer from his, his struggles with, you know, addiction and, and all the other things. But, but I do think that maybe it would have been easier for him to get the help, right. if that makes any sense. It, it, it's interesting because I, I, I thought that I would conclude my book by saying, Thing, things are getting better now on a practical level. And you're right, of course, organizations such as your own. I spoke to an organization, two organizations actually, that seek to help musicians in the UK. So you're right about it, bringing it into the light. I think that because it is no longer, I think what I'd missed, what I'd, the mistake that I'd made is that I thought that because it is no longer kind of a selling point anymore, mm. you know, again, I keep going back to them, this motley crew, motley crew, right. mot crewization of, of, of the culture, that the culture didn't exist. What I'm, dis what I had discovered, uh, and I picked two young bands at random, and what I, what I discovered from them and from some research that an academic friend of mine was looking, was, was um, uh, kind enough to send over to me, um, was that these problems are just as entrenched as ever. They've kind of gone underground a little bit, which I think mm. is, I think that's particularly troubling. I know yes. you, spoke, you spoke to me, Kelly, in a conversation that you and I had about sort of functioning adults. And you, you'd said that that was, you know, kind of more, even more scary. Right, uh, right. So I, I, I think that I, you're right. If, if there there is places that people can get help and more power to their elbow and more power to your elbow, but I think that I, 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 I'm, I'm much more pessimistic having written the book than I was, you know, as when it existed only in my head. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the bottom line is that the problem is never going to go away, but yeah. we can make the solution more accessible. Right. You know, the, 
there's never going to be a time when people are not suffering from mental health or addiction, No, but there can be ways for them to get the help that they need. And really it's just like any other disease. You know, there was a time when, um, in the eighties when AIDS was pretty much a death sentence, you know, whereas now people can get the help that they need and can live with it and, and can live long, happy lives. And, you know, same with certain types of cancer or diabetes or like all these different things that, that people are able to get help because they, they can have early detection and, and have easier access to, to therapies and that kind of thing. And I think it's the same with this. If we can make it easier for people to get the help that they need, make it um, more comfortable, make it, um, you know, just so much less of a stigma that then we can address the problems that are always going to exist in a much healthier way. I think you're right. I also think it's right not to cast darkness on this too much, Kelly. I also think it's right that there are people in the music industry who would not be mentally unwell if they weren't in the music industry. And I think Mm. that is an enormous problem. That is a good point. Very true. And perhaps something that's something that can change in the future. I would hope so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, exactly. I think that would go a long way. It really would. And that's, that's a tough position. There's, it's either feast or famine in that industry. You know, there's very little in between, but thank you so much for your time, Ian. This has been for me personally, really, really enlightening and a very important topic that I think needs to be discussed and definitely is a huge um, part of why I was interested in doing this podcast. But, you know, talking with someone like you who has had the experience and seen everything firsthand, um, you have such a wonderful perspective. And I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to share that with us. Well, I'd like to say thank you very much to both of you um, for um, inviting me onto the show uh, and also, you know, for the... I'm, I'm, I'm a cynical journalist, so I'm struggling, stumbling with my words here. But for the work that you do as well, thank you. you know, because um, it's easy to be defeatist and it's easy to sort of just, I guess, turn you back on, on you know, given what it, what, what it is that you have been through mm-hmm. and your family has been through, um, to, to just to just chip away at this. You know, I think that yeah. that, I think that, that can, more, like I said earlier, more power to your elbow. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think, you know, if we're in a position to be able to help, um, that we have an obligation to. Right. So, so that's cool. well, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank really you. Yes, thank you. Enjoy, and, your, enjoy your afternoon in, or your evening in Buffalo yeah. and, your, and your afternoon and evening in lovely Southern California. Thank we you. And you happy love. belated birthday. You just thank had a big much. birthday. Thank you very much. 50 last week. Who would have yes, been? you joined the 50 Club. I, I turned 50 last year. I, I'm okay. there. <laughs> well, I'm in good company. We love from a, from a chilly London. <laughs> thank you so much. Have a wonderful night, Ian. You too. Thank you very much, both of you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Well, Kelly, you did it again. Um, what some amazing stories coming from me. And I, you know, I guess I didn't really know exactly what to expect. I did a little bit of research when you told me about uh, having him come on as a guest, but really some great stories and, uh, and some real interesting insight on the music business and, and kind of some of the things going on around the music business. Definitely. I'm so excited to read his book and it's going to have to wait a year for it, but I'm definitely looking forward to that. Again, that's called Bodies life and death in the music industry. So we'll keep an eye out for that. That's going to be a good one. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's really cool getting to um, all the different individuals that we've had on the show and, and just to kind of hear everyone's story and uh, mm. everyone's experience. It's I, I, I'm still so lucky. I, you know, I tell people all the time, I'm just the first listener. Um, <laughs> and uh, and today I just had a great time listening to those stories. It, it really was. It really was great. And uh just so you guys all remember, the reason why we bring these stories to you and these amazing guests is because the Knoll Family Foundation is raising money to get Bradley's house up and built. And uh, realistically, it's just a way to help others. And you guys can take part in that. And Kelly, anybody that's listening, if they want to donate a couple bucks or maybe pick up a Bradley's house hat or t-shirt, how can they help? They can check us out at thenollfamilyfoundation.org. We've got a donate button there. We've got a link for all of our merchandise. We also have Cash App. We're Knoll Family on Cash App. We're Knoll Foundation on Venmo. And through PayPal, they can send donations to info at thenollfamilyfoundation.org. Absolutely, guys. Every little bit helps, um, you know, working hard to uh, to get the funds raised to get this house up and built so we can start helping people. And I say it all the time. You guys can have your little piece of the sublime story still in getting this house opened in Bradley's honor. Kelly, a lot of fun with Ian on the show. And, you know, that... I'm just a sucker for that British accent. I could, uh, <laughs> I, I could listen, I can listen to those, uh, to, to that, that all day long. So in honor of that, how are we going to close out this show? We're going to close out the show with a song from the wonderful compilation that our good friends at law records made called the house that Bradley built. We have a track on there from a band from the UK that I absolutely love, have seen them at least half a dozen times in concert. And actually at one of their shows, that was my oldest son's first mosh pit. The band is the Skints and they did a phenomenal cover of Get Ready. Guys, I hope you enjoy it. You can check out all of the songs on YouTube at the Bradley's House page, as well as all of our episodes in the archives. Check out past guests and past interviews that we've done. But for now... I'm Jared Orr, she's Kelly Noel, and you guys don't have to go home, but it's time to leave Bradley's house. Hi, this is Brindy from the Knoll Family Foundation. Many people struggle with addiction. Here is a personal story from someone in recovery. We hope you'll be encouraged as they share their experience, strength, and hope. Um, so I'll start, you know, start off the same. I'm Amanda, I'm an alcoholic, and uh, my sobriety date is uh, June 23rd, 2019. Um, I currently today have 657 days sober, um, one day at a time. Um, I, God willing, will, um, hopefully have two years, uh, coming up in June in a couple months. And, um, I'm just, uh, incredibly dumbfounded and grateful by the, uh, the life I have in sobriety. Um, you know, I was, I was raised in a good family and a good home and pretty much had, um, you know, we were upper middle class and, and I went to a parochial Catholic school and like I said, I had a very wholesome upbringing and um, was always told I had so much potential. And, um, and that all kind of went out the window in high school when I started smoking pot and enjoyed the life of feeling good and finding the next way to party instead of, you know, focusing on school and getting into a good college. And, um, you know, I, I got married early and had my first child by the age of 22 and, and I uh, tried the the family married life for a little while. And, uh, by 25, I was separated from my husband and had a partial, you know, um, partial custody of, of my then two year old and was 
doing cocaine, um, smoking crack cocaine and um, partying like a rock star at, at any day. I didn't have my two year old. And, um, and it was, it was just wild. And um, I got sober uh, for the first time, uh, December 17th of 2007. Um, I remember uh, I actually went into a treatment center on Christmas day. And in order to to keep myself accountable um, to staying sober, I uh, I signed over custody of my two-year-old to my husband that I was separated from at the time until I completed 90 days of treatment, and um, and I I did I did that treatment. I actually didn't even get to stay. I got kicked out a week after I got there for fraternizing, <laughs> and um, and I, I didn't. I stayed sober. Um, I didn't get to stay in treatment. I ended up going into a sober living home and worked diligently with my sponsor and did the steps and um, immersed myself in AA. And and it was great. I got about a year and a half sober. I ended up getting back together with my husband, Um, got the promises of the program very quickly, Um, felt like I got my life back. And uh, my husband and I moved to Utah and I made the mistake of thinking that I was cured, that my problem had been substances, and as long as I stayed away from that, I'd be okay. And uh, I started started drinking recreationally again. And, um, you know, we, we did okay in Utah. Well, kind of. Um, I ended up having my second my second daughter there. And, um, and I was able to manage my drinking while we were in Utah, uh, but my husband was not. And... Um, we ended up separating permanently um, December 2nd of uh, 2011 um, due to his alcoholism. Uh, we had both been heavy drinkers for most of our relationship. Um, other than that year and a half, I was sober. And uh, anyway, I, I, we separated because he couldn't stop drinking and, um, and I was managing my drinking okay. And, and I came back to California and started being a single mom with my two girls. And, um, you know, I, on paper, I managed my life okay. Um, I was able to maintain a job. I decided to go back to school, and um, I had worked in restaurants for almost 20 years and decided to go back. And first, I got my bachelor's in human services and then my master's in counseling. And um, during that time period, my drinking just slowly got worse and worse and became something that was a necessary part of my everyday life. Um, and during that time period, my, my ex-husband was not able to stop drinking. Um, and unfortunately he, uh, he passed away from alcoholism, um, in July of 2017, uh, before the age of 42, um, drank himself to death and passed away from having esophageal varices. And, um, you would have thought that, um, watching him go through that process and watching what it did to my girls would have been enough for me to stop. And, uh, and it wasn't, I, um, I used alcohol as a coping mechanism for the grief I had over the loss of my children's father. And, um, and it was just, it really spun actually out of control. I think more after he passed away than ever before. And, you know, I'm here. I was in a graduate program trying to get my master's in counseling and I couldn't even start a day without a shot of vodka. Like literally I had to make sure I had two shots of vodka because I needed to, I needed to take a shot to, to kind of get my system going. And I'd usually throw up the first one and need a second one to start feeling okay. And then I could function. And, um, and I don't know how I managed to, to do what I was doing. I was just in go, go, go mode. But, um, 
But I can tell you when I walked in my graduation ceremony in May of 2019 with a master's in counseling, I felt like the biggest fraud ever. I was like, what in the heck am I doing here? I'm, I just got all of this education under my belt to be able to go counsel people on how to become better people or live better lives or work through their trauma. And I'm, I'm sitting here drinking, you know, a minimum of a fifth to, to, you know, um, gosh knows how much vodka a day. I mean, like I said, I couldn't even start my morning without it. And, um, and I just decided that something needed to change. Um, and, uh, I have a, a dear friend from high school who was getting uh, a year sober and uh, she invited me to come to a women's meeting to see her get her chip in April. And, um, and that was kind of when I started to admit that I, I had a problem and that even though I wasn't doing substances the way I had in my 20s, that I really wasn't managing life well. And, uh, and I, I went to that women's meeting, not every week, but pretty consistently between April and June. And, um, and they had this thing where they'd go around the, the table and, um, and introduce themselves as an alcoholic and give their sobriety date. And I remember it, it would get to me and, and I couldn't even say today because I would have already taken a shot that morning just to be able to get to the meeting. And, um, and I don't know, by the, by the second week of June, third week of June, um, they finally kind of got me to open up and talk and just said, you know, let us know what's going on with you. Like, where are you at? And uh, it was the first time that I was able to say out loud that I wasn't okay. And I, and I started crying in that meeting and I just said, I, I don't know how to change anything yet, but I just know that I'm not okay. And uh, there was a woman that chased me out of that meeting. I did not know her at the time. And, um, and she gave me her number and she said, uh, what worked for me was to pray for surrender. And, um, and it sounded kind of profound to me, even though it seemed really simple. And, um, and, you know, sure enough, the next day that that same woman who I did not know sent me a text and just said, thinking of you. And, um, and I, I was blown away that this woman I did not know had taken the time to send me a text and let me know that she was thinking of me when um, I had showed that I wasn't okay the day before. And, um, and I did what she had suggested. I prayed for surrender and I called her and I said, I, I want to, I want to stop drinking and I don't know how. And, um, and she helped me figure it out. I, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a single mom with two girls and, and it wasn't an option for me to go into a medical detox or a treatment center. And she helped me figure out how I could detox from home somewhat safely. And that dear friend of mine who um, had gotten a year sober in April um, is an LVN and she was able to, to check on me frequently and check my blood pressure. And, um, and I, I detoxed from home. Um, I actually haven't had a drink since uh, June 20th, but my sobriety date's June 23rd because I did smoke some pot to get through my withdrawal symptoms. And, um, and you know that, that woman that told me to pray for surrender and help me figure out how to detox um, sponsored me and, and continues to sponsor me in my recovery. And, um, and I am just beyond grateful and blessed that I have not had to have a drink or take a drug since, um, since June 23rd, 2019. And, um, and my journey in recovery has been just incredible. Um, you know, there were women from that meeting, Brindy included, who were calling to check on me that first week to make sure I, I had everything I needed. Did I need Gatorade or crackers and picking me up to take me to meetings? Because even though I had a car and a license, I was not feeling like driving to a meeting during that. And, um, 
And I just, they, I, I was surrounded by so much love and support and encouragement. Um, I don't think I'll ever forget that. It was, um, it made me know I was doing the right thing and that I didn't have to do it alone. And I can honestly say that since the day I chose to get sober, I have not had to walk through anything in my life alone, even as a single mom. Um, there has always been women and people in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous to walk me through whatever it is I'm going through. And, um, you know, I had walked in a graduation ceremony for my master's program in May before I got sober, but I hadn't finished my final project. And, uh, and it took me a while. Um, it took me almost nine months to finish um, that final thesis in my, my master's program. And my degree didn't post until May of 2020. Um, but, uh, but I did it. I got it done. I spent a lot of time in my early sobriety just in the big book, working my steps. Um, started going to that 6 a.m. meeting every day um, and found out that I really enjoyed starting my, way that, starting my day that way. It, it gave me an opportunity to kind of get right-sized and get my head right to start off the day. Um, it allowed me to see other Alcoholics Anonymous that were doing the deal and to grow in my fellowship and, you know, stay, stay close to the pack, um, get to know other women. Um, and I also liked that it didn't interfere with my time with my kids. You know, I, I had been that mom that was there to make sure that they ate and got to school and had a lunch packed, but I definitely hadn't been present for them. And so um, doing the 6 a.m. meeting every day allowed me to be home to get them ready for school and be home and present with them more in the afternoons and evenings. And I really enjoyed that. And, um, and it's part of my routine today. Um, I still get up and do the 6 a.m. meetings in the morning. And, um, and I, I, I just can't say enough about how much my life is different. Um, you know, I, I get to work out in the field now as a therapist. I work with a with individuals at a mental health facility in Orange County um, during the day, which I absolutely love. It's higher acuity uh, patients that, that need a lot of help, and I love being able to serve them and, and work with them with the training that I got in my program and um, in my master's program. And I, I see clients through private practice in the evenings and weekends, and um, and I try to stay active and involved in, um, in Alcoholics Anonymous and be of service where I can in that area of my life. And, um, and I, I, the relationship I have with my girls and my children and my family today is, is night and day from what it was before I got sober. You know, I have a, a 16 year old that's, she's a great, great kid, but she's got her own struggles. And, um, and I finally have been able to let go of trying to control her path and just build a relationship with her where when stuff's not going right, or she's having issues, she actually comes and talks to me. And that is like one of the greatest gifts of sobriety I could ever ask for, um, to have my teenage daughter know that she can come talk to me and, and, you know, yeah, I get upset about stuff, but she, she's not judged. She's accepted and loved for who she is. And that is a gift of the program. You know, I, I, um, I just, I can't say enough about, like I said, the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program and the design for living that it's provided me. I, you know, I, uh, shared recently with my family that, you know, I finally feel like I've been given the tools to live up to the potential that I've always been told I have. And that feels like a gift from God that, um, that I just, I, I can't describe how grateful I am for. And, you know, I had another friend that, um, just asked the other day, like, do you plan on never drinking again? 
And I just said, you know, I don't want to jinx anything, but I do know for a fact that my life is a million times better without drugs and alcohol. And I have no plans whatsoever of ever returning to that life because this, it just, it was miserable. I, I, I don't ever want to go back to feeling like a fraud and an imposter and feeling like I lived that double life. I just, I was full of self-loathing and, and hatred of myself and I could barely look in the mirror. I remember I, I would brush my teeth in the kitchen so I didn't have to look in the mirror. And, um, and today I, I somewhat like who I am and I'm still a work in progress and still have areas to work on and improve. But, um, but I have a way of doing that and I have a God in my life that I can turn over to and, and let him be in charge of the results. And I can just focus on, uh, on the task that's in front of me to do and stay focused on, on the next indicated step and leave the results to God. And, and that's a gift to the program that I, I can't say enough about as well. Say that smoking herb is a crime. If they catch you smoking, they're bound to drop the dime. Insufferable, informer, crazy fools. Wait with their fingers crossed for you to break the rules. And in the evening, yeah, we try to jam. We like that. Fingers crossed for you to break the rules 